Well, this morning our reading is from Ecclesiastes 8, and it's the full chapter. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he, who, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God, thank you for your word. Good morning. I'm excited to be in Ecclesiastes still. I'm excited for you to be here with us. The Bible is full of these examples of 
God's people living under the rule of wicked leaders. From Joseph in Egypt to David under Saul, Esther and Daniel in Babylon, even Jesus and his apostles under the Roman regime, uh, wicked governance has been a consistent reality for God's people throughout history and in every uh, church age. We are reminded in these stories that living under such rule is frequently complex and certainly not morally unambiguous. There is always a fine line between accommodation and compromise with the wicked world. In a democracy like we have, we are tempted to believe that we are no longer under the authoritarian rule of wicked leaders because, ostensibly, we have chosen our government. But a graphic prominent in the 70s, what we would now call a meme, uh, sums up the cynicism and apathy of many voters towards the governments they have elected. It said, don't bother to vote, the government always gets in. The second half of Ecclesiastes is devoted to considering the benefits and the limitations of wisdom. Wisdom is good, especially when the alternative is foolishness and destruction, but wisdom will not ultimately make us the masters of our own destiny because God alone possesses true wisdom, and He has, 1 Corinthians 1, 19-20, thwarted the discernment of the discerning and made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, here in chapter 8, it begins to explore the benefits and limitations of wisdom in relation to wicked leadership. It gives typical wisdom advice concerning how one should act in the presence of a king, uh, but then it qualifies that advice by once again pointing out the limits of wisdom. No one really knows because we humans don't know how things will turn out. Another limitation of wisdom we'll find here is because righteous people and wicked people don't immediately get what they deserve respectively, there is confusion introduced to our determination of what is wise practically. So if someone does something wicked and that always works out well for them, what are we supposed to learn about wisdom? And so we are assured here that though the wicked are celebrated and the righteous forgotten, though in this life the righteous should reap the rewards of wickedness and the wicked the rewards of righteousness, this too is hevel, like mist, it is ephemeral and fleeting. This is this word in the ESV translated vanity. Mist. It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him, but it will not be well with the wicked. In the final assessment, the author commends that we should live in joy. We should fear God, keep His commandments, and eat, drink, and be joyful in the few days God has given us to live because lasting gain does not rely on our ability to scrabble it together by excessive striving, even in striving for wisdom. While every other book of the Bible emphasizes God's potent sovereignty, which is good news for those who love Him, Ecclesiastes pairs that emphasis of God's sovereignty with an unflinching look at human inability. 
When we correctly assess just how impotent we are, we will rest from our anxiety and our meaningless struggles and live according to the fear of God in joyful obedience and trust. Now, our passage this morning is yet another chiastic structure in Ecclesiastes. I've explained this a few times. This is where each of the statements are echoed on either side of the most important message, moving in to the most important point at the center. So it, it, the same thing is said at both the beginning and at the end, and then the second thing said is also the second last thing said, and the third thing said is the third last thing, so on. And this is to draw our attention to the most important point the author's trying to get across in the center. It begins and ends by exposing the limitations of wisdom as an effective tool to control the outcome of our lives. Verse 1a, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? It will continue later, but then in verses 16, 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day or night do one eye see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And so it begins and ends with the realization that no one really knows what's going on or how things will work out. God has reserved this sort of ultimate wisdom for himself. And so no matter how we toil in seeking, even if we give up sleep for it, we will not ultimately comprehend wisdom in any meaningful sense. Claiming to be wise then, Romans 1.22, is rather foolish. The next level of the chiasm, like layers in an onion, are two sections of instruction, verses 2 and 3 and verse 15, uh, but we'll read verses uh, 1 through 9 to begin. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Do you see how it starts by giving wisdom and then by saying, but who really knows? The wise man will do the right thing at the right time, but who really knows what that is? It tells us to live in wisdom and then tells us that there's some severe limitations to our ability in wisdom. Now, it begins with a question. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? And then it presents a proverb. A wise man's, or sorry, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. And this proverb could mean that wisdom, being a good thing, gives one a pleasant appearance due to the good circumstances which they enjoy. But the author has his own particular interpretation, verses 2 to 3. I say, 
keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. So this interpretation takes the proverb in a drastically different direction. Rather than a definitive statement about the blessing of wisdom, which the proverb could mean, the author understands the proverb as wisdom instruction for someone in the presence of a ruler, where a scowl at the wrong time might be quite dangerous. It is wise not to show disapproval or disagreement with a despotic ruler. So the author takes the proverb to be wise instruction to make your face pleasant and to remove any suggestion of impudence when in the presence of the king. In my family, we joke that I have Hanford face, which means that I always show what I'm thinking on my face, unfortunately. So I, someone will say something to me, and what shows up on my face, I'll get in trouble without saying anything at all. The, the following instruction has a close parallel in the Proverbs of Ahakar, advisor to the Assyrian kings, who warns potential courtesans to be very careful around the king and to listen carefully to what the king says. He akins the king's words to fire, so one must be careful to obey them quickly lest they consume you. At court, any inappropriate word or demeanor might prove to be fatal. And so Ecclesiastes gives us the same sort of advice regarding proper behavior in the dangerous presence of authority, but in some of the hardest to translate Hebrew in all of Scripture. So that I wonder if the confusion is a feature and not a bug, having just told the reader that no one can figure wisdom out. So he gives the wisdom, but in such difficult language that there's not a single translation of the Bible that puts this the same way. The clearest parts are that one should obey the king's command because he does whatever he pleases, and that no one can second-guess him because he is supreme. The rest of the instruction is far less clear. Obey the king because of God's vow, which could mean a vow you made to be loyal to the king, or because, as in the king, case of King David, God had vowed to give him the kingdom. It also could say, don't be hasty to make a vow to God. It, it, the Hebrew is easily translated different ways. We are then told not to be hasty or maybe terrified, and then to either leave the king's presence or not leave the king's presence, and then maybe not to do an evil thing or possibly not to stand up to the king when he has an evil idea. It may even be telling us to quickly obey the king, even if it is in an unpleasant matter. So, I hope that was helpful to you. Now you know how to behave wisely in the presence of authority. What is clear is that the king behaves as if he is all-powerful, accountable to no one for his actions, so it is fruitless and even dangerous to question him. This is how to live with evil, wicked authority. What's strange, though, what's telling is that Ecclesiastes applies to the earthly ruler what other passages such as Job 9.12 and Isaiah 45.9 say about God, who is ultimately sovereign over all things. The emphasis seems to be the point of Daniel 4.23, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. 
The injustice and sorrows of life force us to come to terms with the powers that govern us. On the human level, this is the king, or in our case, uh, the prime minister, the government. But on the higher level, this is God. We can avoid a bad situation, verse 5, by demonstrating loyalty and obeying the ruler's commands. Whereas many other texts like Daniel 3, 13 to 18, the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Acts 4, 13 to 21, make it clear that when a king commands something immoral or contrary to God's truth, God's people must do what is right despite the consequences. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, verse 6. For there is a time and a way for everything. This is where, after commending wisdom, the author returns to the theme of limitation. There is a time and a way for everything. But a man cannot know this definitively, so his trouble lies heavy on him. Verses 7 and 8 continue, For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Do you see how this takes a drastic change? It's like there's a right time for everything. The wise man just, does, just, just do the right thing at the right time. That's wisdom, right? But nobody knows. No man has power. He does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. There is a time and a way for everything, but that is of no real benefit figuring any of this out. Only God knows what the future will bring, and he has hidden it from his creatures, so we are quite helpless and unable to plan or exercise control over events. Here, the possibility of control of the situation through wisdom is denied with the presentation of four further instances of human impotence. No one can possess the wind or the spirit. No one can predict or control the time of their death. No one can get out of a battle that has already commenced, and no one can escape wickedness. Now, this last one is a reminder from one of the points of last chapter. Wisdom is beneficial in keeping us from wickedness, but useless to deliver us from it. Another limitation of wisdom, which we discussed, an example of our total and desperate need for God's grace. So, all of this is to say, despite our best wisdom, verse 9, man exercises power over man to their harm which leads to a contemplation about the fairness of life. Verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, I said that this also is vanity. Again, this is a chiastic structure, so the most important message is sandwiched here in the middle between two statements about the injustice and inequality of life. 
In verse 10, Ecclesiastes observes that hypocrites are praised in the world. Wicked people play the religious game, coming and going from the holy place, acting like they are godly when they are not. And yet they are praised in this life and honored in death with a proper burial. And because of this, others join them in their wickedness. This is vanity, hevel, like a mist at dawn. It will not last long because it is not immediately punished. Evil only increases. If people do not observe negative consequences for bad actions, they will be encouraged to do even more evil. And so why not join the evil people when they seem to be the ones who prosper? They have a good reputation. They get lots of affirmation. And like the Pharisees, they are even seen as religious. God, in His wisdom, 2 Peter 3.9, is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But when God defers punishment, not only does it allow for some to repent, but it also causes others to become more and more entrenched in their witness. God, in love for His chosen people, delays judgment, but it is also for love that He judges the wicked on the day of His coming. We sing some songs, uh, and there are many more psalms, that praise God for judging the wicked. But it's not because we hate the wicked, but because it is for the good of His people that God does this. Paul explains the loving motivation of God's wrath-filled judgment in Romans 9, 22 and 23. He says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? So judgment is a necessary mercy. Because without sin, or sorry, without it, sin would only increase in us. Every action of God is motivated by love. So oftentimes we break apart God's character and his motivations and his meaning in things. We say, this is a judgmental part. Here's where God's judging. Here's where God's being merciful. Here's where God's being loving. Here's where he's full of wrath. That is a false dichotomy. That means we've, we've falsely separated those things. God is love. And he is very merciful in the way he judges sin because it says here, without judgment, without punishment, sin would just constantly increase. And so God shows mercy to some and judgment to others for mercy to the some. We could not live for eternity loving God, choosing his way, operating, knowing that we can choose what we want and yet always choosing God without knowing the judgment that exists for sin. It is God's mercy for us that he judges sin. But because he does not immediately judge it, sin increases in some, even while others are getting that chance uh, so that they would not fail to come to repentance as God has called them. A second vanity, read Havel, that takes place on earth, verse 14, is that just as people are not immediately getting the punishment they deserve, so also they do not get the rewards that they deserve. Look, it is completely foolish, unbiblical and foolish, to look at someone's success or failure, 
sickness or health, poverty or riches, small church or big church, isolation or community, fame or insignificance, and then conclude in our hearts that they are a righteous or a wicked person. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Now, this too is hevel because it is only the temporary state of things in this sin-scarred world. I want to say more about that, but I don't have anything to say. I don't want to read it again. Think on that. How foolishly we judge others. And especially in religious situations where people are judged according to their health, their wealth. Oh, my goodness. This highlights the center statement, right? There's a, a, a vanity, a hevel, that people uh, don't get what they deserve, both before and after the middle statement. It's highlighted by the entire structure of our passage in verses 12 and 13. On the one hand, he recognizes that life is not fair. On the other hand, God is good. Life is not fair, but God is good. There will be injustices and inequities in this heaven world, but the wicked will not ultimately prosper. All of these transient things will be reversed, and all things will turn out well for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. Now, this is a rare statement in Ecclesiastes. Most of the author's observations are qualified by the description under the sun, such as in verse 14, or sorry, or such as in verse 14, what takes place on earth. Ecclesiastes, though, is confident that God, in his timing, will judge the wicked, but that is not what he has observed on earth. Therefore, the clear implication of his thinking is that there must be some time beyond the times of life in which wrongs can be righted and imbalances corrected. The chiastic structure of the whole piece is gathered around this dominant thought. So there's no way that Ecclesiastes is adding this as an ironic nod to more conventional wisdom literature. This truth is foundational to the message of Ecclesiastes. But because the final thrust is not to merely wait out a tortured existence until the day of judgment, Ecclesiastes gives us a far more practical message. And so while he holds on to this idea of God's sovereign justice at the end, he's not saying just wait and see. The Christian is never invited to merely check out and bide their time until the end. In the end, the message of Ecclesiastes is intensely pragmatic, teaching the wisdom of how to live a joy-filled life, how to enjoy the good things God is giving us. Ecclesiastes 5.20 so that we will not much remember the hardships of this life because God has kept us occupied with joy of heart. This has been the mind-blowing thing for me in Ecclesiastes. It's just this blinding stare at all the most horrible things in this life and then saying the most excellent things, the most wonderful truths 
We have already been told, verse 12, that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. This is a resounding theme throughout Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep His commands. That's one response to the way the world is. Secondly, now in verse 15, the author breaks with the chiastic structure to remind us again of the second great refrain throughout Ecclesiastes. Verse 15, And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. It's a practical message, church. It's not just waited out, all the good things will come, but how do we enjoy the good things God has for us now? How do we live the joy-filled life as believers? We must recognize the limitations. No human can find out what is done under the sun. Despite all of our efforts, no one can find it out. Even if the wise claim to know it, he cannot find it. It is this reality that leads to the advice of verse 15. It is not the ultimate justice of God that is in doubt. Only human ability to understand how that justice works out in practice. We don't know. Therefore, Ecclesiastes counsels wise living as far as we are able, but secondly, to recognize that our wisdom is so limited that it cannot be relied on. And so instead of endlessly pursuing understanding of what God has hidden, we should live well the life God has provided, however marred by sin. The temptation of wisdom is to depend on our skillful living to the neglect of trusting God. Sure, some things can be accomplished through wisdom skillfully employed. But it is a short step to supposing that a person can control life and its outcomes through wisdom. So the way this starts, right? Here's what you should do in the presence of a ruler. But nobody really knows. It may work out that though righteous, you receive the rewards of wickedness. It may be that though wicked, you receive the words of, of righteousness, but God will give justice in the end. The thought is, do your best, but nobody knows how it's going to work out. It reminds me of the many times that people have come to me, especially in recent years, who work in healthcare or work for the government, and they're like, what do I do in an evil system? How, do I, should I just quit because I know the system's evil? Well, that's not the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. And yet, how do we know when the right time is? The wise will know, but we are not wise. So we must come to our Heavenly Father for wisdom, but when we don't make the right choice, God still works that out for our good and His glory. There are so many things that I can look back to in relation to my life and in relation to decisions made for this church where I can say, well, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have trusted that person. And yet, all of the, that lack of wisdom in me served God's purpose and His glory, and we can look back now and see all the ways God used it for our good. Now, we don't see that with everything, but this is ultimately the truth of God's Word. So, we do not rely on our wisdom. You know, church, I would be frozen in fear to make a decision when it comes to stewarding God's church. I, would be, I, I just couldn't do it because I don't know how it's going to work out. But because we know that whether I make good choices or bad choices, God will be glorified and His people will benefit, then I can just do my best. 
And so when, whatever your situation is, do ask God for wisdom. What should I do in this? What's the wise thing to do? How do I glorify you, God? And then do whatever you think is best, knowing that he will work out your worst mistakes for his, good, his glory and your good. We don't know how things work out. The last chapter was all about how we don't even know what's good, really, because we don't know how things work out. God knows. The temptation of wisdom is to depend on our skillful living to to the neglect of trusting God. The joy of living requires not only an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, but also of our utter inability to procure and achieve the control that we desire. You can't live the life of joy without realizing how unable you are to secure what you want. The safety you're looking for, the success you're looking for, you don't have the wisdom for that. Nobody does. When you realize that, you can live in joyful trust and obedience. We must come to terms with the limits on our ability to explain, much less eliminate the injustices and oppressions of wicked governance. I want to read that again. I want you to hear this. As Christians living in an evil world, we must come to terms with our ability to explain, much less eliminate the injustices and oppression of wicked governance. It is not what God has given us to do. Also, it is tempting to give in to cynicism or despair as we observe injustice, especially as it displays itself more and more locally. But Ecclesiastes counsels us to fear God, enjoy the undeserved good He has granted to us in this life, and to leave the moral governance of the universe in God's hands. Even in the midst of unfairness and injustice, we are to recognize the positive elements that are gifts from God and be satisfied with even the simplest things He has granted. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ecclesiastes speaks of the wicked and oppressive rulers of this present age under whose power God's people must live for a time, often to their hurt. It takes for granted that human government is often wicked, even though such government is instituted by God, Romans 13, 1 and 2. It then offers advice about what righteous living should look like under the oppressive regime. Every response to human governance must flow from the recognition that Christ is king and that every wicked regime is a temporary feature of reality which will meet its appropriate recompense in due course. It is hevel. And though we are to know this in our hearts, we should not behave outwardly as if we do know. We should change the hardness of our faces so they shine. We keep a good attitude on our face. Even though I know this is short-lived and your destruction is soon, I don't speak that way to our authorities. 
This is what the proverb is about at the beginning of the chapter. And so Ecclesiastes counsels, number one, caution. When confronting earthly power, even though that power in relation to God is no power at all. When sheep are sent out among wolves, Matthew 10, 16, they must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves in order to survive. To caution, number two, it adds patience. The wise person who understands the nature of things will not struggle foolishly against reality as it is presently found. Why would we? We know that it exists according to God's will and He will judge according to His will. And we don't wrestle against what we find presently as though we could wrest control from God and single-handedly change the world for the better. We achieve nothing by exasperating those in authority. Neither will we get a sympathetic hearing from one to whom we have been discourteous. God placed Esther, a lowly orphan, in the court of the Persian king, and through her conduct and demeanor, the way she honored her Lord, though he was evil, she won him over to the cause of the Jews. To caution and patience, number three, Ecclesiastes adds integrity. We must not be drawn into living falsely just because we live in a world where falsehood is normal. We are to live our lives peacefully and joyfully, eating and drinking as expressions of trust in God. Such simple acts undermine all worldly ideologies that exalt power as a means to human happiness. That is, when we do so, something so simple as to sit with our family and friends, sit with our church, and just enjoy the good things God has granted us, however simple they are, soup and bread. This is a countercultural act. This is an act that undermines the world's value system. It shows the pursuit of wealth and power is not the means to happiness. The narrow path refuses the temptations and ignores the threats of power. We don't do this because we know and understand all of what God is doing, but because we know that God is God. We should not deliberately risk our lives unnecessarily, but there will be good reasons to do so. For God is God. And loyalty to God comes first above all other loyalties. As the apostles answer in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So God's people have always been faced with the dilemma of knowing when it is right to remain silent and when is it right to protest. And to this question, Ecclesiastes provides a very elusive answer, uh, end of verse 5, the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. But the joy and peace that comes from trusting God is in knowing the lack of wisdom we have to control the way of things. It is wise to consider the time and way for everything, but ultimately, none of us knows exactly how and when things will work out only that God will work them out. And it will be for our good, whether we choose wisely or not. That is hope. 
That is the joy here. There's wisdom expressed here. Yes, we should walk in wisdom, but if our hope is in our wisdom, we are lost. So seek wisdom, but not too hard. Enjoy what God has graciously granted. Ecclesiastes is blatant about temporal, bitter realities and eternal and glorious truths. We can eat and drink and be joyful through all of the toil of our short lives under the sun because we eagerly await justice at the return of our true king, Jesus, the Messiah, anointed one. He commands us to submit to our earthly authorities as they are instituted by him, but we are citizens first of his kingdom. Our allegiance is due to Jesus as Lord rather than to any earthly ruler. And this is why, as the church, when we gather, we often say together, Come, Lord Jesus, come. But because he promises to come, we can enjoy this life. This is where Ecclesiastes is taking us. Do you see? It's not just some far-off hope, but a hope that transforms us now, and we can enjoy good things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wisdom of your word, a wisdom that tells us that wisdom can't be trusted, a wisdom that tells us that we can't really know enough of wisdom to make all the right choices, a wisdom that's begun in the fear of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would grant us this fear this morning, those who have feared you and those who need to fear you more and those who have never feared you, Lord, grant us fear of you as we recognize that we cannot navigate this life effectively. We lack the wisdom to do so. We can only trust. And when we do, our lives are filled with thanksgiving, Joy in the present, pleasure in the good things you have granted us. It is only as we recognize ultimate salvation that every heavenly blessing is ours in Christ Jesus that we can be those who are thankful for the crust of bread we have, thankful for the warmth we get to experience, thankful for the family that you've made us a part of. Thank you for the country that we get to be in. Give us this heart of thanksgiving which will transform our faces so that we are not dour and rebellious and brazen but those who with the joy of Christ in our hearts are constantly sharing good news to those around us. Living counterculturally by satisfaction and contentment. Do this in us for our good and for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.